You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Hey, I, I missed you guys last week. I didn't know if it sounded like you missed me, but yeah, no, I, I, I miss being here. Fortunately, Ron, as you know, here in the Northeast, uh, it's good to be here. Good to be here this month of the year because it's the best month of the year. It's October. We've had that uh, spectacular weather with warm days, cool nights, autumn colors. They're great. They're terrific. It's up in Vermont last week. It's great. Uh, Dartmouth's undefeated. And then, Ron, the Red Sox are, yeah, like I said, <laughs> Dartmouth's undefeated. <laughs> well, I was in the stands with my, uh, my son Jack and my wife Nina watching those two uh, games. Uh, I was talking with our producer, Robert, who's a big Astros fan, but we had him. He had a little palpitation of the heart when uh, Devers hit that inside the park homer in, uh, in the final inning, but we didn't quite pull it off, Clark. And if you're a Sox fan, uh, we're used to that. Yeah, but I'm not a Sox fan, Ron. And, you know, listen, I'm, I'm sorry about him, but uh, you've got to, like I said, you've got to like this month of October. Hey, Goose, you've got to like this month of October. I mean, you're not here, but, uh, you know, anywhere that you're a Cowboys fan, you've got to love it because this month, I like this segue, Ron. This month, no, this week, this week marks the 28th anniversary of the Herschel Walker trade. And that's a deal, of course, that changed the Cowboys forever, as the Goose Man knows, and turned them into the team of the 1990s. Yeah, the Cowboys out on Shrine Vikings GM Mike Lynn for that deal. It single-handedly built a dynasty. The Cowboys got seven draft picks for Herschel, and they converted, converted them into Emmett Smith, Darren Woodson, Russell Maryland, and Kevin Smith. Four Pro Bowlers and the NFL's all-time leading rusher. Well, guess what, Goose? We're in luck today because we have Herschel Walker with us nice. to talk about that deal. I'm serious. I mean, Herschel Walker in the house. We also have former Dartmouth and Kansas City Chiefs and New York Jets kicker Nick Lowry to talk about his Hall of Fame candidacy. Former GM Charlie Castley, now with the NFL Network, to complete our 1987 strike series. And Seth Wickersham of ESPN the Magazine to recall the life and t- death of Y.A. Tittle. Hey, Goose Man, did, did you, by the way, read Seth's piece on the passing of Y.A.? Yes, I did. I really appreciate the quarterback because he could have played in any era. He played in an era when the referees didn't protect the quarterbacks. Yeah. He also got through seven touchdowns in a game. Anyway, that's coming up in the next two hours. But first, at first we're going to hear from our sponsors, as we always do at this time. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, as you no doubt know, should know by now, the Houston Texans have lost star defensive end J.J. Watt again and again for the season. He made it three ga- through three games last season. He made it through five this year. And in those eight games combined, he had one and a half sacks and 23 tackles, which is not exactly Hall of Fame worthy. And that, guys, is why I want to address J.J. Watt today, because there are plenty of people out there who think that is, if J.J. Watt never plays another down, they think that he is Hall of Fame worthy. Now, I I know he's in his seventh year and already is a four-time All-Pro, three-time Defensive Player of the Year, and two-time leader in sacks. That's great. But once upon a time, as you know, people would tell you four productive years, eh, they weren't enough to be Hall of Fame worthy. But that, of course, was before Terrell Davis reached Canton. So... Let's start at the beginning here. Goose Man, I'll start with you. Do you believe that J.J. Watt, first of all, is finished as a dominant force 
And would you be surprised if he retired and say, well, next year or two? Oh, he's only 28, so I doubt he's down as a football player, but, but injuries have taken a toll. You know, like you said, he, he will have missed 24 games over the 2016-27 seasons, and that is a chunk out of the prime of a player's career with back and, and leg injuries. So I doubt we ever see Watt enter another season as the favorite for NFL Defense Player of the Year honors. Yeah, you know, I don't know that he is, uh, you know, but if he is, I, I think his Hall of Fame trajectory is too. Now, you know, I... Uh, I admit, a three-time player of the year, uh, defensive player of the year, is difficult to ignore. Uh, so is a two-time sack leader, difficult to ignore. But if you retire with 76 sacks and you miss 24 of your final 32 games, that's a pretty tough sell, I think, for most people. You can never say for sure what the voters are going to do, uh, and certainly those three defensive MVPs will stand out, but that would be a tough sell for me. No, you're right about that, Ron. You never can be sure what the voters are going to do because I wasn't sure that they were going to put Terrell Davis in ever. And, and he's in uh, now, of course, in 2017. So let's get to the sort of central question here. Let's just say J.J. Watt's career were to end tomorrow, and and that's conceivable. Is he Hall of Fame worthy? Or let me put it to you straight, Goose, man. Would he have your vote? Well, there's a lot of work to, to get through here. In his first six seasons through 2016, he collected 76 sacks, had two 20-sack seasons, and was an NFL Defense Player of the Year. Through his first six seasons, Mark Gastineau collected 81 sacks, including two 20-sack seasons, and was an NFL Defensive Player of the Year. You know, like Watt, injuries derailed his career, but Gastineau's name has never come up for the Hall of Fame. If you're not going to consider Gastineau after his first six years, and they were better than those of Watt, why would you consider Watt? Okay, Ron. Why? <laughs> Once again, Dr. Data has slammed the door wow. on another wow. potential Hall of Famer and nothing said, left, go nothing, to your room. Nothing I mean, left but debris after that. Yeah, look, look, that was a nuclear waste. I mean, but, but the goose man, as always, is, is, is right. Look, he's really a, a great player in a short period of time, but Hall of Fame greatness to me is defined by more than you know a short period of time. And look, I've said publicly, as much as I like Terrell Davis and admire Terrell Davis for a lot of different reasons, I couldn't bring myself to ultimately vote for him in the end because, uh, unfortunately for him, he didn't play long enough. And I, and I would look, I would tend to look the same way at Watt. And certainly, when you when you mentioned Gasno, do any of us have any of us ever thought of him as a Hall of Famer? No. And, and Ron, since you mentioned that, you guys are both on the senior committee. I'll ask you, since he's a senior candidate. Has his name ever come up? And if not, why not? I, I can't remember it ever coming up. No. And, and, and no. I think that the reason is, uh, as Dr. Data just pointed out, you know, he didn't do it uh, long enough. Uh, and, and look, history in that position, most guys last you know, quite a long time uh, if you're uh, an effective uh, pass rusher, even often well past your prime. And, and I just think in both those cases, uh, for whatever reason, um, Unless things change for Watt, you know, I mean, physically, I don't know that she can come back uh, again and be that high-quality player. And if he can't, I think it's going to be a tough sell. But here's my question to you. And, Goose, I'll ask you, start with you first, since you wasted this guy in that Gee, what a response. That wow. Brutal. Yeah, that was a 102-mile-an-hour fastball on the paint. That was Tyson um, against Michael Spinks. Bam! Get out of here, you know. That was Chapman on the black. Hey, um, <laughs> Goose, I mean, longevity used to count for something. But uh, as we all know now, I mean, the, the Davis situation does change the conversation. I, I honestly, I think the Easley situation does, too, not quite as much as, as Davis. But I, I agree with everything you're saying. However, 
we're just three guys, and there are 45 others in that room. Do you think the Davis situation changes it for them so that they look at a guy like J.J. Watt, and as you said, Ron, you know, three-time defensive player of the year? Whoa, dominant player. Two-time sack leader? Whoa, dominant player. Four years? Well, yeah, short, but, but, I mean, Terrell Davis had four good years, three great years. Uh, if we let him in, maybe we should let this guy in. Here's difference, the, here, difference the, of course, was that he won, Davis won two Super Bowls. Well, that's it. That's the difference. 69% of everyone can and won a ring. If Terrell Davis had the same numbers with no championship ranks, no Super Bowl rings, he's not in. He got in because he has two championships. Mark Gastineau never got there. J.J. Watt never got there. That's the difference. Well, you know, the one thing I would say, and this is be a cold comfort to J.J. Watt if, if, if it were to turn out uh, that he never again reaches the player that he was and doesn't go to the Hall of Fame. Uh, he's proven to my, satis- more, to my satisfaction that he's a Hall of Fame guy. Right, he's a Hall Absolutely. of Fame person. Right. And, you know, in the grand scheme of things, gold jacket, blue jacket, the three of us know a guy in a purple jacket. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> wait, wait, so you know the good news about this, guys, is with J.J. Watt's spare time now, he can run for either governor of Texas or president of the United States. I mean, <laughs> that kind of guy. Yeah, no, I mean, it's just terrific, the things he's done. And, look, it would be sad because he was such a dominant player, no no question about it, you know, uh, for for that brief period of time. But, you know, part, part of ability is, is uh, you know, availability. Availability, that's right. A big part of ability. Well, we're going to have to wait on J.J. Watt and Canton, hopefully for many years. But we don't have to wait on another star who had a short career, and he's the subject of Ron's State Your Case, which appeared this week on our website, that'd be talkoffamenetwork.com. And surprise, surprise, people, it's a former Raider. Ron, <laughs> let's hear it. Well, you all talked about Daryl Davidson. You know, Bo knows TD, and he knows TD was no Bo because, well, there'll never be another Bo, you know? The Hall of Fame case for Bo Jackson will be a long shot under any circumstances, but the induction of Daryl Davis a year ago, despite only two Hall of Fame-worthy seasons, in my opinion, uh, in a career marred by injuries, has opened the door to Canton a crack for short-term stars. And who is a bigger star than Bo Jackson? Although he played in barely two full seasons over four years, 38 games, uh, because he was allowed to be a full-time Major League Baseball player before joining the Raiders after baseball season ended, Jackson was arguably the best running back in football for at least half his brief career. Terrell Davis' successful Hall of Fame candidacy was primarily the creation of numbers crunchers who took his two most brilliant seasons plus his tremendous three-year playoff performances and argued a career so brilliant should not be ruled unworthy of the Hall because it was cut short by injury. Well, that's fine, but if you guys, guys buy that argument, where do you draw the line? In eight playoff games, TD carried 204 times for 1,140 yards, an average of 5.6 yards a carry. In Bowles' only playoff appearance before a freak hip injury ended his football career, he more than doubled that by averaging 12.8 yards a carry against the Bengals before he was dragged to the ground for the last time. Give Jackson 204 carries with that average, and he would have rushed for more than twice Davis's totals. Now, many like my friend Clark will argue, you can't do that. But Davis supporters can't say that because it's exactly what was said about uh, Terrell Davis when some argued his phenomenal average of 142.5 rushing yards per game in the playoffs was unsurpassed. While that's true, the fact is history tells us average, that average would go down had he had a normal length career because Denver would have kept making the playoffs and no one running back uh, can maintain that pace as he ages. The point is not to knock TD, but to say, if that's the game you're playing, Bo knows the game. In three of his four NFL seasons, 
Bo Jackson averaged more yards per carry than Davis, than Davis's finest season. In 1990, he made the Pro Bowl despite playing only 10 games and carrying only 125 times. What would have happened if he'd played in 16 and carried the same 392 times that Denver shoveled TD the ball in his 2008-yard season? Bo would have rushed for 2,195 yards, beating not only TD's numbers uh, by nearly 200 yards. It would have broke the all-time rushing record for a single season. Now, Jackson never played more than 11 games a year. He never started more than nine because of his baseball commitments. Yet when he played, he was dominant and arguably the best uh, runner in football his final two years. In 1989, he rushed for 950 yards on only 173 carries. Double them like Davis, and it's a 1,900-yard season. Combine that with his potential 2,116-yard season, and Bo knows... Uh, you would have had two years greater than the two that put Terrell Davis in the Hall of Fame. Well, Ron, you may know Bo, and Bo may know football, but I'll tell you what I know, breaks, and we have one coming up. When we return, it's ESPN the Magazine, Seth Wickersham on the passing of Hall of Fame away title. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, Hall of Fame quarterback Way Tittle, as you know, uh, passed away last week at the age of 90. And while he was one of the game's most accomplished quarterbacks, in fact, he was a guy who in 1962 threw seven touchdowns in one game. True story. Uh, he's best remembered for a black and white photograph of him kneeling in the end zone in Pittsburgh. I'm sure you've all seen it with blood streaming down his head. It really conveys the image of a broken warrior, except it's, it's something or at least someone that Y.A. Tittle was anything but. And I know that because I read Seth Wickersham's piece on him in ESPN the Magazine three years ago and his story on his death this week, which we carried on our website, talkoffamenetwork.com. And both of those stories lend insight into the man and the player he's with, he was. And, and Seth is with us today. And first of all, Seth, thanks for joining us. And, and second, um, you spent a lot of time with Y.A. and his daughter three years ago in and around the Bay Area, and also when he returned to his hometown in East Texas. Um, what did you discover then that you weren't expecting? Um, yeah, well, first of all, it's like great to be with you guys, and um, it's good to hear all your voices. It's been a while since I've seen you guys in person. We don't quite you know, cross paths in the press boxes as much as we used to, and it's just... Uh, Usually it's Super Bowls. Usually Super Bowls. Yeah. I know, but Super <laughs> Bowl is almost like a convention you know everyone's there that's right um what you, you know i i think the thing that that stood out to me a lot about spending time with ya both you know when i first sort of met him and his family three years ago and then you know every time i've been out to the bay area since then i've, I've spent time with with his family um is that he you know he he suffered from dementia and I don't think that the dementia subtracted from his humanity. I think that in a weird way it refined it and, and kind of elevated it because, you know, he, he, he was at his heart, I think, a very happy person and someone who he had an innocence to him. You know, being around him was almost like being around, a, a, you know, a toddler in some ways because he had this like childlike innocence. He was almost incapable of being angry or hurt or mean or anything other than just sort of being happy to be in the moment. And I think that dementia kind of stripped him down to his essential elements. And because of that, I think that, um, I think that surprised me the most. He was, he was just a joy to be around. And, you know, there was just never any hint of a person that was angry or a person who was suffering. 
Seth, you obviously formed some sort of bond with Y.A. and his family during your time in Marshall with him. How did you hear of his death, and what was your reaction? Yeah, um, I knew that he had gotten sick a couple of days before. Um, you know, the, the things weren't good. Um, I got a text from his daughter and his son-in-law, her husband, um, that he was in the ICU at, at Stanford Hospital, and they were sending me some videos of it. And um, I think they kind of knew that this might be it. They weren't quite sure. I think they were hopeful that they might be able to get him back, but I think they weren't quite sure. Um, but, you know, they were, you know, he led a great long life. And, you know, to, I, I, as I watched the videos, you know, there were videos of they were playing music around him. They were singing. And, you know, with, with the energy that he had left, he was almost kind of moving his head around. Um you know, we should all be so lucky to go out that way. I mean, it's probably a great way to go if you got to go, honestly. And so in a weird way, I was, I was obviously sad that this was the end for him, but I was kind of, it brought a little bit of a smile to my face knowing that, you know, he was surrounded by the people and the sounds that he loved most. And that, um, you know, the, the, the room had a feel of kind of a, a, a celebration in a weird way. Well, obviously, uh, we know him mostly as a football player, and those are most of our memories of of why when I was a kid, the Giants games were always broadcast in Boston because there was no, you know, the, the Patriots were this sort of toddling little Boston Patriot team, uh, and so a lot of people were Giant fans, so you saw them a lot. But uh, you know him differently. Uh, uh, what's your favorite memory of him? Um, I think that the defining memory I have of him is. When I was down at his house in Caddo Lake, and, you know, the, the, the point of my story, for anybody who hadn't read it a couple of years ago, was just, you know, his daughter trying to deliver this annual party for him one last time. And it was incredibly difficult. His health was deteriorating. He wasn't doing well. His memory cycle was very tight. You know, he couldn't remember things that had happened minutes ago. And it was just a, it was a hard week. And, um... You know, I think she was hoping, his daughter was hoping that being around his, his childhood buildings and relics would kind of help pull some memory out of him, and it, and it wasn't. And the night of the party, you know, it must have been around midnight or something, you know, he was still asking for vodka rocks, and, and <laughs> everyone was giving him glasses of water. You know, I wasn't sure he the difference. But uh, he, there was a couple of us, there were some people who had guitars, and they were singing, and so I was kind of in that group. And um, there was a, a gentleman who was there who actually used to play in Jackson Brown's band. He's a, he's a very accomplished musician. And he sang uh, Amazing Grace. And as soon as he did it, YA, you know, his, his face turned red and his eyes started to get wet. And something clicked inside of him. And there were memories that were coming up that even he wasn't quite prepared for. And it was a really interesting moment because he kind of seemed to endure a little bit of a breakthrough and the next morning his memory and his sort of his memory loops were 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 much different than they had been and he was telling different stories and um you know something happened in that moment and i i can't explain it because i'm not a scientist but you know something i witnessed it in front of my eyes you know something happened in that moment and he had a bit of a breakthrough and i think that that helped his daughter get on the plane home knowing that, you know, she had given her father something that maybe he wouldn't have had if they had just not done the party and stayed in California. 
We're speaking with Seth Wickersham of ESPN, the magazine on Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And Seth, since you uh, referenced that trip, uh, I would ask all of our listeners to really try to read this story that he wrote three years ago in ESPN, the magazine. It's wonderful. Um, and it's, it's one of the best pieces I, I've come across in years. Um, and, and my question for you is when I read that, um, how did you decide – on Y.A. Tittle as a subject. How did you sell that to the magazine, and, and how did you convince him and his daughter to take you into their inner circle? Yeah, well, I can go on for this for a couple minutes. But, like, <laughs> you know, I had not thought about Y.A. Tittle really at all. You know, I knew about his statistics, but that was a, and I knew about the picture, obviously, and that was about it. And we had, I had a, a friend who happened to be friends with, uh, family friends with, with their family. And he said, you know, just so you know, Y.A. has dementia, and, you know, I don't know if it's worth a story or if, or if it's not, but maybe just, you know, next time you're in the Bay Area, go meet with the family. And, you know, honestly, like, I didn't really, you know, nothing really seemed that uh, exciting for me about that. You know, a lot of older NFL players have dementia, and I didn't want to write a story that has been written a million times very well. But um, I was out there. It was the last game in Candlestick Park um, when the Falcons played the 49ers. And it was a Monday night game. And I remember the, the day before the game, I think the day of the game and maybe the night before, maybe the day before the game and some part during, you know, of the Monday, I spent with the family and I didn't even bring a notebook. Um, his daughter had written a book, a little bit of a memoir that no one read about what it was like um, growing up with Y.A. as her father. And she's a very poetic writer and a very deep thinker. And I had, I had bought that book and read it before I met with them. And so I had some insight into her. And um, I spent the day with them, and I don't think I, I had a notebook or even a backpack or, you know, I basically just wanted to hang out with them as casually as possible and try to get a sense of what their life was like, a real look at it as best I could to decide if there was something worth pursuing. And then when they told me about the trip to Caddo Lake and the, the annual party and how this was probably going to be the last one that he did, that's when I knew, okay, this is something different. You know, this is not the same story we've read a lot. This is a different type of deal that we have going on here. And so um, I wanted to have that deep arc of story. And, you know, for a while it looked like it wasn't going to happen um, just because his health got bad. He was hospitalized. For a while they thought about taking a train from San Francisco out to East Texas. Um, but, you know, it ended up working. So that was kind of how it came together. Seth, both you and Clark mentioned that famous black and white photo of uh, Y in the end zone on his knees. Can you tell us what he thought about that photo and, and if it was visible at all at all in his house? It was. So he had like his sort of, uh, you know, trophy room. Uh, it was it was a den in his house. And, you know, he had great stuff there, just these unbelievable pictures. And you know, he was the first football player to be on the cover, of, first professional football player to be on the cover of Sports Illustrated. Um fantastic room and then you know this picture is kind of tucked in there and i didn't again that's the picture that he's famous for so i never really um asked him about it and then as i spent time with him it was just clear that he had a love-hate relationship with the picture i mean i think there are moments when he hated it because i think he hated what it symbolized and what it came to symbolize again you know the idea of that broken down warrior a man beaten uh, defeated, you know, a, a quarterback who 
was kind of the, like the Dan Marino of the 60s. He, you know, was never able to get his team over the finish line despite these great numbers. And then, but I also think that, you know, he came to also see it in a different way as something that he was proud of because he got up and he played the next week and he had a broken sternum on that play and he played through it. And I, so I think that like the picture was something that he wasn't always entirely comfortable with. Um, but I think he also, you know, found a way to make peace with it. Hey Seth, we're going to have to run, but uh, thanks so much for the time and, and thanks for the insight into a great, great football player and a great man. Thank you guys. Thanks, Seth. That was ESPN the Magazine's Seth Wickersham. Up next is Herschel Walker on the 28th anniversary of his trade to the Minnesota Vikings. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. If enshrinement in Canton means induction in the Pro Football Hall of Fame and not merely the NFL's Hall of Fame, our next guest should have long ago been inducted. Herschel Walker is one of the greatest running backs in football history. He was Eisman Trophy winner at Georgia, the biggest star in the USFL, and a premier running back for much of his 12-year NFL career, which began and ended with the Dallas Cowboys. He was also the catalyst of one of the biggest trades in football history, and he's finally on the 108-man Hall of Fame preliminary list this year which will be pared down to 25 semifinalists later this month. We are pleased today to have Herschel come by and pay us a visit at Talk of Fame Network. Herschel, welcome. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. It was a great introduction. Thank you. <laughs> How much, if at all, do you think about the Hall of Fame 20 years after retirement, and, and do you believe that your USFL success should be a legitimate part of your resume? Well, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, well, I would say last year, uh, I probably never thought about it at all. You know, I was out there doing my thing, blowing and going, not thinking about anything, just working. And uh, and I'm not sure why, uh, but this year, uh, I think after I saw a couple of guys inducted into the Hall of Fame, and then I had a call from someone that told me that I'm on the list for the Hall of Fame, it hit me. Why am I not on in the Hall of Fame? <laughs> and you know, it was a big question. Why am I not in it? And one of the things that I don't think, and that was the second question you asked, is should I go in because of pro football? And I said, no, no, no. I don't want to go in because of pro football. I want to go in because of NFL. I want to have the same criteria as anyone else. You know, I want to go in as anyone else. And because I think if I just go in as just NFL, if they want to test the NFL, I'm not sure why my stats wouldn't get me in on that reason also because you look at the stats and and I think they're pretty good. And I think when you start throwing the USFL in, they get even better. But I don't want to do that. I want to go in just like anyone else because and going into the Hall of Fame is not something that you want to say put an asterisk at anyone's name. You want to go in as just a player, and that's what I want to do. Herschel, all that said, you still hold pro football's all-time single-season rushing record with those 2,411 yards in the USFL's final season. Although if you Google up the NFL, the single-season rushing record, they still have Eric Dickerson there. Before, um, was breaking that record on your mind as you entered that final USFL season? Uh, you know, uh, I think as I was getting close to the record, 
it was on my mind then. And the reason why is when you play football, you play football to do the best you can at, wh- at whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter what league or what level. You just want to be the best you can for your team. And I figured breaking that record meant a great deal. You know, my center on the team at that time was a guy by the name of Kent Hole, who was Jim Kelly's center with the Buffalo Bills. So I was playing with some guys that was uh, great guys at that time, and breaking that record meant uh, a great deal because it just showed that I was still doing the things I did when I was in college. And that's what I wanted people to see, is I can still do those things. Well, in Dallas... Uh, signed you in, in 1986 after the USFL uh, folded. They had drafted you uh, to get your rights. Uh, as I recall, you came in not listed as a running back but as a fullback next to Tony Dorsett. Uh, was that experience difficult for you? Was it more difficult than you expected? Because, I mean, you'd always been the main man. Uh, no, not at all. And that's one reason, uh, and, and I reckon I'm telling my own horn here that I said, why should I not be in the Hall of Fame? Because I tell people, look at what I've done as a football player. Let's not just look at it as a running back. Because I went into Dallas, and as you were saying, I was a fullback. But I don't know if a lot of people even know I ended up breaking the Cowboys receiving record that year uh, as, as a what, fullback, tight end, uh, slot bike, whatever they asked me to play, I played it. And I ended up breaking the Cowboys' receiving record that year. My record stood until Michael Irvin broke it. And I think when you start talking about football players, that's what I tell people. Guys, I play whatever they ask me to play. You know, it wasn't that I wanted to play running back. I wanted to do this. I wanted to win football games. So whatever it was going to take for me to win, that's what I wanted to do. Yeah, Herschel, speaking of that, when you, when you finally became the full-time starter in 88 after Dorsett was traded to Denver, he led the NFC with 1,500 rushing yards, had 2,095 combined yards, and the NFL's top back that year. Yet you played six different positions, fullback, halfback, tight end, H-back, slot receiver, <laughs> flanker that year. Did you enjoy all that, or did it detract overall from what you thought might have accomplished simply as a running back? Uh, no, no, no. I, I loved it. I loved it because, you know, when little kids grew up in the backyard playing football, you know, sometimes you idolize uh you know, someone, Jim Brown or Gale Sales or Dick Buckers, you idolize those guys and you grew up wanting to do that. But, you know, people don't know that. I never idolized any football players because I never watched football. All I knew is uh, my parents taught me whatever you do, you go out and do it well and try to do the best you can. So it didn't matter where they put me at. I wanted to excel in it. I wanted to be, a, uh, you know, I wanted to be one of the best at it, you know. And, and I tell people, you know, I um, they, they can put me at, at – a slot back, and I wanted to be one of the best in the NFL. Whether I was a running back or not, I wanted to be one of the best at that position. Uh, you know, you look at kickoff returns, I wanted to be one of the best at it. I didn't just want to just be back there to be there, but I wanted to be able to contribute to my team. Well, half a season later, of course, Herschel, as, as you recall, October thirteenth, 1989, famous day, you were the key part of one of the biggest trades in NFL history when the Cowboys acquired five players and eight picks from the Vikings for you uh, in four picks, and those picks Dallas ended up using to make the cornerstone of their dynasty of the 90s. Looking back, how do you view that trade? Because I know a lot of people at the time thought you were the final piece for the Vikings to uh, to make a Super Bowl run. Well, you know, I, I, I felt, uh, you know, when I got there, they said I was the final piece. And, and then when I got there, uh, you know, the talk was Herschel Walker is not a split bike field back. And, and, and that sort of hurt me a little bit. And, and the reason why is because of what you said early on. When I got to Dallas, I played what 
five different positions, and I did well at it. When I go to Minnesota, they say I'm not a split bike. But, yeah, they never even ran me from the split bike. And then I look at my stats from being a split bike, and I was averaging, uh, well, being a Minnesota Viking, I was still averaging four point whatever yards being in Minnesota. So it's sort of like, well, how did he continue to do what he was doing in Dallas? And you say he wasn't a split bike. So uh, that's what was kind of tough. But I tell people this, Minnesota, one of the best places I ever lived in my life. Uh, the people, the area was absolutely incredible. So it wasn't that experience. I think God takes us through things and make us better or to make us worse. It's according on how you approach it. And I approach it, I think, in the right manner because I got a chance to go to Philly and, and, and do some other things. Russia, when you retired in 1997, you were 16th all-time in rushing, 5th seat to reach 16,000 all-purpose yards, and 19th to rush for over 8,000 yards. Yet it seems like the Hall of Fame voters forgot you immediately. How does that happen? Well, I think that <laughs> happened because I played on so many different teams, and I was not on a Super Bowl team. But that's a question I think you need to ask them. How can you forget about certain players? And you know, and, and I hate to pat myself on the back here because there's a lot of guys that uh, I, I feel that they've forgotten. Sorry, that probably should be in the Hall of Fame. That should have been there way before I even uh, is being considered. But you know, I look at myself and I say, guys, and we just go back to the NFL stats. How can you not look at Herschel Walker's stats and put him anywhere? But, you know, this is a this is a good question for, let's say, Minnesota, Philly, or Dallas. Where do Herschel Walker's stats lie? Meaning uh, when Dallas is putting up uh, combined yards, do they put Herschel Walker combined yards up as a Dallas Cowboy, or do they only put up what Herschel did as a Dallas Cowboy, the same as Philly, the same as Minnesota? How do you put them up? Because once you start breaking them up, it may not be impressive. But when you look at it as a whole, as an NFL player, you know, uh, combined yards, where will I be at with the Cowboys, number one, probably. And uh, Philadelphia, number one. Minnesota, number one. So that's what is so interesting, and, and that maybe means they've forgotten about it, is where do Herschel Walker go at as a Hall of Fame player? Is he a Cowboy, Minnesota Viking? And people forget New York, a Giant, or a Philadelphia Eagle. Yo, Herschel, is Something that just struck me as you were talking about that with the individual stats of various teams. Uh, do you think you were hurt at all by the fact when you came out of college? I mean, you were, you know, I mean, it's a little bit of a of a hard way to put it, but you're almost like a godlike figure. I mean, you were this Eisman Trophy guy. You were going to dominate football. You were going to be Jim Brown. Uh, do you think maybe expectations were unfairly high, too high, that no one could ever be what some people thought you should be, and so therefore, even though you're uh, a great player, they forgot. Uh, not at all. I, I, you know, I think expectations got to be put on by that athlete. You know, I, I think you got to put them on yourself. Other people can put them on you, and, and I, I go out and, and I perform, and that's why I tell people all the time, you got to go out and perform, and then you start looking at the things I did, and you look at the trade and different things, and, and um, the question is always asked, do you regret going to the USFL? And I say, no, I don't. And the reason I don't regret it, because if you think about it, let's say if I was the number one guy taken in the NFL, maybe I went to a team that was not that good and gotten beaten up a little bit, but at the same time, I don't think people would have ever saw the things that I can do as a as a football player. I remember uh, catching a ball uh, 
when I was with the New Jersey Journal and Coach Michaels, uh, said, oh, Herschel, I didn't know you can catch like this. <laughs> and I said, Todd, you never threw me a pass. <laughs> you know, he's like, you know I can catch. You never threw me in a pass. And all of a sudden I get to uh, Dallas, and, you know, I became a receiver. And, you know, and I think people saw that I can do those things. And then all of a sudden I asked once to return a kickoff, and the first thing they said, oh, no, 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 you don't want to do that. And I said, guys, I can do it. And when and, and you look at, uh, you know, I did well as a kickoff return guy. You know, uh, and, you know, and that's what I said. I just wanted to play football. And, you know, people don't even know. I even got a couple of little, a few tackles. I think I was <laughs> on the front coverage team. So I did that as well and, and, you know, and I, because I wanted to play. Marshall, in hindsight, do you think the fact that you were in that trade hurt you, the fact that they traded you away and then won championships? Uh, you know, it, it could hurt me at the same time. It could hurt me, but, you know, who knows? But, you know, my thing is uh, if you're a voter, do you look at that or do you look at uh, the player or look at the player? Because, you know, I, you know, I, first of all, uh, athletes got nothing to do with trades. You know, I, I have nothing to do with a trade and nothing to do with anything else. And, you know, as Jerry said in his speech, you know, I could have said no to that or whatever. But, you know, I'm, I, like I said, I'm a player. And if you look at my last year, I don't even think I negotiated a contract. I think I may have played for minimal or whatever. I don't even know what it was, but. I, I uh, just went out and played football. You know, I was happy doing what I was doing, and and, uh, and that's the way I always. That's where I've always been. So, do you think about that at all and say, "Geez, if I just played, you know, eight hundred yards three years in a row, all of a sudden I'm, uh, you know, I'm at ten or eleven thousand NFL yards, and they look at me differently." I uh, know. Uh, you know what, what's strange is I I've always in my life never regretted anything because it may change or alter something else in my life, and you know a lot of people don't like me to say this, but I say you know going through the years of fail. Had me to play for the president of the United States, and, you know, and I'm not going to say that was great or bad or wonderful, <laughs> or whatever. But got me to play for the president of the United States. Uh, going to the USFL got me to be around people like uh, Doug Flutie. Uh, you know, and I did Brian Spike, who was a guy that helped me to understand uh, football a lot. Uh, Danny White helped me to understand when I got to the Cowboys, but it helped me to read a defense better. Learn to read defenses. Learn to read when they blitz. Learn to read what, who your guard is blocking, who your tackle is blocking, who's your strongest guy on the line, where, how you should run the ball. Well, Herschel, we appreciate uh, you dropping by with us. But like you, we've got to run. Uh, but thanks uh, again for coming by, and good luck on your Hall of Fame uh, quest. You certainly have a strong uh, case, and, and we appreciate talking to you. Hey, thank you guys for having me on. Thank you now. Thanks, Herschel. Sure thing. Uh, next up, it will be our two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, you should know that sound by now. It means we're headed to the two-minute drill. Guess what? I've got this week's calls. So, guys, let's get started. What can Adrian Peterson do for Arizona that he couldn't do with the Saints? Go into a game expecting to touch the ball at least ten times. I'll catch you one better than that, Goose Man. Run out for cacti. <laughs> Mitch Trubisky, Mitch Miller, Mitch McConnell, or Mitch Ryder? Give me the guy in front of the Detroit wheels, Mitch Ryder. <sighs> I knew that was coming. Exactly. Mitch Miller, he's the guy who could keep everyone in rhythm. <laughs> <laughs> Bigger surprise, Zeke Elliott avoiding an NFL timeout or ESPN sitting down Jamel Hill? Well, I'd say Elliott because he's consequential. Jamel Hill is not. I'd say the biggest surprise is Jamel Hill forgetting who's really paying for that Mazzy she keeps saying she's driving around Bristol, Connecticut. <laughs> Good one, Rat. 
Now that J.J. Watt has free time, how do you like his chances as uh, Texas's next governor? Maybe the mayor of Houston. Not good for governor, but he's got a shot at sainthood. When do we actually see Andrew Luck on the field again, and will it make a difference? Yes and no. Even bad luck is better than no luck. It will make a difference, but on that team, only to his next of kin. Bigger loss. J.J. Watt to the Texans, OBJ to the Giants, or Mike Pence to the Colts? Derek Carr to the Raiders. <sighs> oh, I, I, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm just breaking into tears. I can't even that. <laughs> painful. Cowboys owner Jerry Jones says he will bench players who disrespect the anthem. So who's the first to sit down? The 90,000 attend the home games are hoping it's Jason Garrett. <laughs> <laughs> I'd say no, because these guys know you can't mess with Goodell and don't mess with Texas. Terrell Owens, my friend T.O., has offered the Giants' his services as a wide receiver. If you're GM Jerry Reese, what do you tell him? You don't want to stop that clock in your Hall of Fame eligibility. <laughs> I'd say go infect someone else's locker room. <laughs> Steelers quarterback Ben Rosenberger says, quote, maybe I don't have it anymore, unquote. Hey, you know what? Maybe I don't believe him. Why? Because maybe he doesn't have it anymore. He sure looked old last weekend. I think maybe he's right because he began the year talking about retirement. And Bill Parcells always says, when they start talking about retirement, they're already retired. That's the end of the game. That's the end of our first hour. But don't go anywhere. Coming up, we have former Chiefs and Dartmouth College kicker Nick Lowry and the NFL Network's Charlie Casserly to talk about the 30th anniversary of the 1987 strike. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Find the show on Twitter at Talk of Fame Net. Here are your hosts, Rick Goslin, Ron Borges, and Clark Judd. Welcome back to the second hour of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron. And coming up, we're going to hear from former Kansas City kicker Nick Lowry, graduate of the Michigan State of the East, and that would be Dartmouth College. As well as former GM Charlie Castle. We're going to talk to him about the uh, 1987 strike. We've got our fourth in the four-part series running this week on the 30th anniversary of that. But first, first, since we are Hall of Fame-centric, I want to ask about a comment I heard last week, guys. And it's one I, and I know you have heard before, and, and that was that Adam Vinatieri, since we're talking about kickers here with Nick Lowry, Adam Vinatieri is, in the words of, and I've forgotten who it was. I think it was Mike Tariq or Al Michaels. Anyway, they said he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. Not just a Hall of Famer, but a first ballot Hall of Famer. <laughs> Gooseman, uh, you want to take a rip at that? Sorry. Yes, I do. I'm of the belief there are two types of Hall of Famers. First ballot Hall of Famers and the rest. John Unitas was a first ballot Hall of Famer. Bob Greasy was not. Jim Brown, first ballot Hall of Famer. Curtis Martin, not. Jerry Rice, first ballot. Charlie Joyner, not. Lawrence Taylor, first ballot. Jason Taylor, not. As great a kicker as Vinatieri is, he does not deserve to be mentioned in the same first ballot sentence as Unitas, Brown, Rice, and Taylor. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more, and I know Ron probably will agree as well. So, Ron, I'll direct this to you. It took us uh, 28 years, I think, to get in one. That was Jan Stenrud. Another 26 to get in another, and that was Morton Anderson. Uh, so I agree with Goose. I mean, I don't think any kicker or punter is sure anything, and you know that well. It took you a couple of decades to get Ray Guy in. So what makes Adam Venteri so much shorter than, say, oh, yeah, Morton Anderson, leading scorer of all time, and a two-time, two-time all-decade first-teamer? 
Well, I would say uh, this was a viral case of uh, first ballot old colitis. I mean, what are these people talking about? You know, uh, look, Vinatieri, a great kicker. He had some, made some of the most memorable kicks of his era, no question about it. I think you can certainly make a strong case for him in the Hall of Fame. But uh, anybody who thinks the first ballot Hall of Famer does one thing. It eliminates you from the Broadcasting Hall of Fame, if you ever said that out loud. Like, Lord. I guess that means Tony Romo's not a first ballot Hall of Fame. God almighty. <laughs> okay, well, speaking of kickers, we're going to catch up with one of the best. That'd be former Chief Star and Dartmouth College Star, Nick Lowry, later in the show. But first, yeah, first, we're going to commercial. This is Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, as you guys know, we have some Hall of Famers in the news this week, and not always for the right reasons. Anyway, Goose, it was your man, Dallas owner Jerry Jones. That would be Canton class of 2017, saying that if the Cowboys were going to disrespect the national anthem, you know what, they could sit down and not play. And he reiterated that this week on a Dallas radio station and saying that uh, he not only meant anyone, he meant everyone. Then we had Hall of Famer Mike Ditka, he'd be Canton class of 1988, saying that if players want to protest during the national anthem, guess what? You can leave the country. So, Gooseman, first things first. You're in Dallas. You presented Jerry to the Hall's board, did a great job. What do you think of what he said? Well, he was exercising his right of free speech and also his right as an employer. Jamel Hill exercised her right of free speech, and then ESPN exercised its right as her employer, suspending her. Jerry's involved in something much bigger than the NFL. He's trying to protect the brand of the most valuable sporting property in the world. His brand and the NFL brand have both been taking a beating over these protests. And the bottom line is Jerry and these other 31 NFL owners are businessmen first, owners second. By saying what Jerry said, he's trying to protect his business interests. Well, Ronnie, I know our president liked what Jerry said. My guess is that you, um, not so much. Um, look, I, I see where uh, DeMora Smith, who's the executive director of the NFLPA, the Players Union, he challenged Jerry on it. You going to take him on too, Ronnie? Well, you know, already the, the, the league has now kind of sort of come out and somewhat softened their uh, rhetoric tonight. Uh, uh, you know, saying, well, you know, uh, you know, we're not saying that they can't do it. <laughs> so, I mean, it's Look, the whole thing has kind of gotten out of hand. Uh, for the kneelers, what does it take to stand again? Do they know? Maybe somebody should ask them. If it's equal rights forever for everybody, they're going to be kneeling for the rest of their natural life. I mean, unfortunately, <laughs> as for Jerry, uh, what is disrespectful, uh, disrespectful about kneeling for the principles for which the flag flies in the first place? You know, we've been over this before, but, uh, you know, he'd been better off in my mind simply saying, hey, guys. Y'all understand this is getting bad for my business, and if it's bad for my business, it's bad for your business. So let's all concentrate on some good business and see who, you know, maybe they would have bought it. But now it's kind of a threat. You don't know if somebody's going to kneel down, and you better hope it's not Dak Prescott. Ron, when the, the paying customers and the sponsors speak, the owners listen. Yeah, but when they, when they stop showing up, then, then we'll That's see. the point. You know, but they stop you know. showing up. I don't see too many empty seats at stadiums. <laughs> I'm at it. Pick anyway. around. Hey, Goose, how, how did you like that Jerry Jones impersonation? <laughs> Ron, can I hear it again? Goose, man. 
You all got to understand. This is affecting my business. Affect my business. Affect your business. Okay. Next Don't up is Iron Iron Mike Ditka. Can't wait to hear oh. Ron do Iron Mike. Now, the Boy. thing I like about Mike Goose is that he's not afraid to say what he thinks. Uh, I mean, I like it, but it's going to come. That to assumes you. he's thinking. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. It's going to come to you unfiltered, and it did. I always thought Mike spoke for the guy in the streets, and frankly, Goose, I, I think he did again when he said, if you're going to protest the anthem, well, you take your shoulder pads and hit the road. I, I mean, I think he spoke for a lot of people out there. Not saying I agree, but I think he spoke for a lot of people out there who feel the same way. You agree? Yeah, again, Mike is entitled to freedom of his own speech, just as the protesters are theirs. You know, there's an obvious split on this issue in this country, and Mike is speaking for one half of that split. The protesters, the other. If you want your own opinion listened to and respected, then you must listen to and respect the other opinions as well. It, it's called an open and honest dialogue. Jones and Ditka were both open and brutally honest, just as the protesters are for their own cause. Jones loves the Cowboys. Ditka loves America. Both are entitled to their own opinions. Well, I agree, Goose, on, on, on that part. You're right. And sometimes the hardest thing to do is listen to somebody else's uh, opinions. Uh, my problem with Iron Mike is uh, <laughs> it just sort of felt and smelled and sounded, you know, like the Nixon years. Love it or leave it. You know, uh, but, well, how'd that work out for us? Not that good. You know, <laughs> Nixon, you know, uh, he loved the country so much he violated the Constitution every way possible. And we've now learned, if you've been watching the Ken Burns Vietnam thing, that he secretly cut a deal with Ho Chi Minh not to negotiate a settlement so until he was elected president, which meant a lot of American kids got killed. So, so much for love it or leave it. Uh, you know, I mean, I just think that, that now you're getting into a dangerous thing. It's one thing to say, okay, I don't like it, or I'm the boss, and I got certain workplace rules, and you need to abide by them. whole other thing to say, you're expressing an opinion I don't like, so you should leave the country. I mean, it's like, come on, man. What are we well, talking about? I, I, I'm not leaving the country, and Ron, I'll tell you this. One thing I always, and I mean always stand for, is yeah, our weekly poll. And Goose, you had a great <laughs> one last week. Yeah, You cover your heart? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> and I pledge allegiance to the Goose Man. Uh, Goose, <laughs> you, you asked for the season's biggest disappointment, and it's a good question. And our readers responded, and they said what? Your Giants winless after four yes. or five games is voted the league's biggest at this point. And who saw this coming? You know, we had Gary Myers of the New York Daily News on the show earlier in the season. He picked the Giants to win the Super Bowl. This is a <laughs> stunning development for a team that went to the playoffs last season and expected to take the next step in 2017. Goose, I saw it coming. I tell you what, because you asked me before the season, you said, who's going to be the worst team in football? I said, New York. I didn't realize it wasn't going to be the Jets. Well, <laughs> hey, uh, Ron, you, you agree yes. with this poll? Uh, look, the Giants are bad. You can never make a strong case of that. I still think the, the the display put on thus far by the Patriots' defense is, is worse because of all the expectations with the money they spent and the fact that you got supposedly the guy who invented defense. You know, he's he's a better defensive system than NATO. Bill Belichick, you can't figure it out. You know, so, <laughs> pretty stunning. How about you, Goose? It's still NFL officiating for me. You know, yeah. The officials are throwing flags at a record pace, calling better than 14 penalties per game. The best officials are the ones we see and never hear from. That hasn't been the case in 27. We've seen way too many officials talking on their well, mics. I'll tell you what, I agree with our readers. Maybe that's because I hear about the Giants every day from my father-in-law, who was a season ticket holder for over 50 years. Anyway, I'll tell you something else I agree on. Yep. I like hearing from our Ron Borges for his Borges of Bogus segment and wish you would touch on why, Ron, why the Red Sox season ended, yeah, before my Yankees. But you know what? I know that's not going to happen. So what is going to happen? 
I'm going to beat up on another New York team. Just like you're talking <laughs> Just which New York football team was the one supposedly tanking? When the NFL kicked off the season five weeks ago, the Jets were being accused of setting themselves up to lose so they could receive next year's overall number one pick. Five weeks later, the tie with the Patriots and Bills, first place in the AFC least, and will in fact square off Sunday against the Patriots to break the logjam. While few people think the Jets will be on top after that game, the truth is they're on top in New York. The Giants, they're in a literal dogfight with the hapless Browns for the league's worst record. That ain't bogus. It's a fact. The Giants were supposed to be the polar opposite of the Jets. They were coming off an 11-5 revival. Wild card loss to the Packers. Saw them as ch- ready to challenge Dallas and the Eagles for the division title this year, many experts said, including Gooseman. Instead, their season is effectively over with 11 games to play. They've lost three top wide receivers for the season. They have a fourth limping around. They have a running back who's in traction. Frankly, it's a miracle off-snowed under quarterback Eli Manning hasn't joined them on IR. The Giants hired an offensive-minded coach in Ben McAdoo to replace Tom Coughlin, yet McAdoo seems to have no offensive answers. He didn't have them last year either. So how's that working out for the G-men? Bogus. What the Giants didn't see was the 2016 was not a message to their opponents. It was a mirage. In 2015, Coughlin's Giants went 3-8, and eight in games decided by seven points or fewer. Last year, McAdoo's team went 8-3. and three. That doesn't mean they were truly better. They were just luckier. This season, 0-3 in those games and 0-5 on the year. And oh, what a mess for GM Jerry Reese. How Coughlin got axed while Reese survived is beyond me. It was the most bogus move ownership could make. Why? 2016 playoff team had only four draftees on their roster taken from 2009 on, meaning the nucleus of the team was non-existent because Reese's drafts were inadequate. Was a, this was a bad team getting worse, led by a 37-year-old quarterback getting buried behind a line that's allowed 13 sacks and coached by an offensive guru whose offense is producing 16 points a game. When McAdoo was working for Coughlin, the offense was ranked 10th and 8th. Left to his own devices, they were 25th and 26th in points scored last year, then 19th in yards and 28th in points scored this year. Where's TC when we need him? Not what we're looking for in the land of the Giants. Unless, of course, you're looking to beat out the Browns for the number one pick. So, John, Ron, who do you make? Who do you take with that first pick next year? I'll tell you, I go for a quarterback because Manning's going to be 38 years old, and he's going to—he's like Mike Tyson's sparring partners. He has been pummeled. <laughs> if it's me, I'm going for a quarterback. I'm with you, Ron. Hey, Ron, as they say in Fenway these days, these days, that's a wrap. You know what? It's over. But never fear, <laughs> Ron. You nice. know what? You have Dartmouth and Brown. True story. Playing football at the Fens on Friday, November 10th. You, be you and I will be there. Yeah, I will be there. But I don't think Charlie Castle is going to be there. But guess what? He will be here with us. In fact, he's up next. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Well, we spent the past three weeks talking about the 1987 strike, mostly because it's the 30th anniversary that 24-day walkout, and we're going to make it four weeks today by sitting down with former Washington and Houston GM Charlie Castley, now, of course, with the NFL Network. And Charlie was the assistant GM in Washington in 1987, where the replacement team was. If you remember when we talked to one of its stars a couple weeks ago, they were 3-0, and and they helped launch the team to a second Lombardi trophy. Hey, Charlie, always good to hear from you. Thanks for coming back. Great to be with you guys. Enjoy your work. Thanks, Charlie. Um, I'm going to get to the general question first, one I've really been waiting to ask for a while. Uh, replacement players, good idea or bad? I think it was a good idea. Uh, 82, uh, the stadiums were, were empty. 
uh, for basically two months, I guess it was. Um, it kept, and people began to walk away from football. There was something else to do on Sunday afternoons. Uh, this way, you had games in all the stadiums, some for people to do. Um, and, uh, you know, people took an interest in the thing. At least in Washington, they did. Um, and I think it kept the game alive. Um, basically, this was going to be a court fight anyway, and that's how the thing was settled. The strike was never going to really uh, make the owners fold into free agency. It, it took a law suit and a court to, to do that. Charlie, how, how did you recruit the players, and, and when did you start preparing for the replacement team? Well, in the, in the summer, the league sent us uh, a form of a contract, uh, a form which was a contract where you could sign a player so if there was a strike, he could only play for you. So we signed a couple of those players. But um, about a week before, or within the last week, uh, we went to work on this thing, and there's a lot of credit has to go to uh, scouts Kirk, Ma- Kirk Mead and Billy Devaney. Um, and all of us worked on this. And basically, it was different than scouting talent. This was numbers, okay? Um, personally, I thought it was a waste of time to go after the big-name guys sitting on the street. There was a reason they were on the street. Football is a team sport. What was going to win is a team that could function best as a unit in, in, in less than 10 days. So we put a priority on offense of players that had been in Gibbs' system, which meant players in our training camp, not only this year, but in the past, or if they had been in that system with some other team, which was the San Diego Don Coriel system. So that was a priority there. Then uh, we reached out to Canada. Uh, we had contacts in Canada. We picked up some players for there. Why? Because they were fresh. They were in shape when they got cut. Um, we picked out players that, as I said, who had been in our camp. Um, we were fortunate, okay, and you really you just got them from anywhere, right? Let's understand that. Uh, Dan Henning um, had a coach, and I don't remember his name, who had coached with him in Atlanta, who was coaching a, uh, we'll call it a minor league football team, um, that had players from a halfway house on it. Four players. We get them from a halfway house. One was Tony Robinson. One was Joe Kofer. Tony Robinson, and I'm not knocking Tony because we appreciate everything he did. At the end, of, they made him a much bigger role than really he played with the football team. Um, we ended up having 50 some players there on our first day of practice, but but it, it was a little bit of you didn't know how many were going to show up because you had no contact with them. You could get a guy to agree on the phone, and he may never make it. So you just kept. In fact, it didn't stop once we got the team together. Uh, you were still the recruiting players. I, I didn't make the first practice or two because I was still trying to sign players uh, for the team. <laughs> in its own way, was it, f- from your perspective, Charlie, in its own weird sort of way, was it kind of fun to have that experience to try to put together this team on the fly and see if you could find a way to compete against other teams trying to do the same thing? Now, Willard was at, played at Alabama, got drafted. Didn't start at Alabama because I got drafted. By Denver, was cut, went to Canada. You know, played a little bit, got cut there. So we signed him out of Canada. Now, Willard, body bill was about six foot three fifty. So if you can imagine what that <laughs> body bill looked like, all right? Um, his job when we signed him, he was a guard at a 7-Eleven in southeast D.C. Now, I know Clark would know what that meant. But that do. was the toughest, roughest drug section in the city at that point in time. He was a guard at a 7-Eleven. So, uh He's out of practice the first day, and I don't get to practice because I'm signing players. So I go out and see Joe Bugle, 
And, and Joe, tell me about practice. Well, you have to know Joe, and all you guys know Joe. He's a very animated guy. So he's, he's, he's on trying to tell Willard how to punch you. See, so I, I, I'm going to show him. So I punch him. I punch it in his stomach. But I can't get it out. It gets stuck there. <laughs> so, oh, okay, thanks. This is our tackle, right? How does the story end? We're playing Dallas on Monday night. Now, I've got to give you the Gibbs speech, see? Um, and we, he's playing two tall Jones. Well, first of all, Willard's not intimidated. He's, he's going to be intimidated when he goes back to guard that 7-Eleven, see? He shuts him out the whole, uh, blocking him the whole night, okay? So, now let me give you the Gibbs speech. Um, we open up against the Cardinals. There's, they got 14 guys across the picket line. We beat them, Okay. We go play the Giants in the Meadowlands, 4 o'clock game. There's like 10,000 people maybe in an 80,000-seat stadium. They got this minor league team, okay? We're, we're killing them. In the fourth quarter on national television, they show their bench. One of the guys is falling asleep on the bench, okay? <laughs> so, I mean, this is the big time, right? So now we're going to go play the Cowboys. Well, the Cowboys are 2-0. and And this was Texas' idea. He's brainchild, these replacement games. And he, he had it figured out, see? Tramp. They were gonna they were gonna ace the three wins and, and, and get a leg up in the division. So the, the story is that he was gonna hold back money, uh, deferment payments. So this is a story I heard, I never verified it, from players. So Dorset crosses the picket line, Danny White crosses the picket line, Randy White crosses the picket line, two tall Jones crosses the picket line, and Don Smerrick, a defensive starter, crosses the picket line. Those are the ones I remember. See, we have nobody that's crossed the picket line, okay? And so we're going to go play this game. It's Monday night football. The strike is over. This is it. So Gibbs gets up in front of the team, and I thought it was a great speech. And he says, men, this is because nobody thinks we have a chance. I mean, I never thought we had a chance. So Gibbs gets up in front of the team. He says, men, this is exactly the situation you want to be in. You came back here to prove you can play in the league. So what better situation than you want to be on national television playing the Dallas Cowboys in front of every other team in the league with their best players out there. This is what you want, okay? And you know what? Uh, those guys went out there, and they played their asses off. And the Cowboys, I don't think they wanted to play. We ended up beating them 12-7. It's one of the most emotional wins I've ever been around in the history of my career. Yeah, I remember wow. that game. That was a great game. We're speaking, by the way, with NFL Network's Charlie Cowsley on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And, Charlie, um, going back to that conversation you had with Mark May, and you said, you know, you're going to be thankful because these games count where they did count, and they helped you get to a uh, Super Bowl. We had one of those replacement players, and really one of the best replacement players ever on this program um, a couple weeks ago, and that's former running back Lionel Vital. And and he said, "Oh, he did. You remember now? He broke the rookie rushing yeah, record. He, that's right. That? that is right. There you I, go. Okay. I, and 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 he was great. But he said there was no acknowledgement of, of what those guys did when it came to honoring the Super Bowl champions. And he was disappointed. Um, my question to you is: A, is that true? And then B, shouldn't there have been some acknowledgement since those games counted? Well, they they did get half a playoff share. though. Lionel didn't get one. They got thirty something thousand." Um, and problem was you had to be, if you're on another roster at the end of the year, and Lionel signed with the Bills for the last game of the year, not knowing this. So, Christian, we didn't know we were going to win the Super Bowl either. Um, so, you know, they got $30-something thousand. I don't know if they got a watch or not. That I don't remember. Okay, uh, If they were on the roster and were active for a regular season game, the 13 other games, um, or 12 other games, I guess it was, they got a ring. Now, um, 
you have to you have to understand the culture of the time. Okay, um, this this was a, you know thirty years. People have forgotten a lot of things. This was a very explosive situation. Okay, um, Daryl Grant stood in front of the bus coming in and broke its window with his hand. Okay, that, that was open. Right, so this this was not a very peaceful situation. Uh, we kept some of the players. Uh, there was a lot of animosity towards that. Um, this was a very bitter thing uh, when it was over. And um, uh, the league did not acknowledge the strike players when they gave out the rings and the playoff share. The playoff the playoff shares were CBA thing. The rings were not a, not a collective bargaining. Mm-hmm. So the league did not acknowledge them. Um, when they, you know, gave the Redskins their allotment for rings, okay? And um, uh, this was an ownership decision, but I supported it then, and I've said this many times because we've got a lot of people now saying they should get rings. I said, I don't remember anybody getting in a car and driving 45 minutes up to Jack Kent Cook and asking him to give these people rings. Nobody stood up there then. It was a very emotional time, and to, to give the players the same award that the other ones got that wasn't going to fly back then. Um, I think we all felt that something should be done as we time has gone on, um, and I don't know if they're going to ever do something or not on the thing. It's it's uh, um, kind of a little bit of a controversial issue here. Um, personally, I've always lauded what they did. Uh, I know that may not mean anything to them, but I've always said they had a tremendous part in that season because what happened was the Giants – Come out of that thing 0 and 5. The Eagles are 1 and 4, and we couldn't beat the Giants. They beat us three times the year before uh, when they won the Super Bowl. We did beat them that year, but our lead was insurmountable at that point in time to win the division. And then when we got to the championship, we played Minnesota, who I believe was a wild card. Yeah, they were a wild card, and we had home field advantage, and we weren't going to lose at RFK in a championship game. So, yeah, there, there's there's a lot that they did for that. Um, I have a hard time with the ring thing because I'm thinking of the moment that all this happened. Um, should there be recognition for him? I agree there should be recognition. I've always recognized it in my mind. And then what I've said publicly. Hey, Charlie, thanks so much for the time. Got to go, but uh, we'll see you down the road. All right, great to with you guys. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, thanks Charlie. Charlie. That's former okay. GM Charlie Castley, now with the NFL Network. Up next, it's former kicker Nick Lowry to be with us. You're listening to the Talk Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. Our next guest, Nick Lowry, is one of the greatest kickers in NFL history. The 12th leading scorer of all time with 383 field goals in 17 seasons. Now, there's an interesting analysis of kickers on the web. And you can find it on the website, footballperspective.com. And it argues that Nick was the greatest kicker of all time based on his productivity and average length. Of his field goal makes and his field goal misses. And that, of course, opens the door for us with a question. Does Nick Lowry belong in the Pro Football Hall of Fame? Well, he's on the preliminary list of candidates for the class of 2018, and we've invited him here to talk about his career and his candidacy. Nick Lowry, first of all, thanks for joining us. And second, I, I missed you in Hanover last week for homecoming, 
and that 28-27 last-minute defeat of Yale. You know, uh, Buddy Stevens was my holder, guys, my <laughs> senior year. And uh, needless to say, I was actually here today in Tucson for the delivery of the first mobile virtual player robotic tackling dummies, which Buddy Stevens yeah. helped develop with a Dartmouth Fair uh, engineering school. And I'll tell you what, gentlemen, it's the future of football. Dartmouth, with only 4,000 students, is competing against the Harvards and the Yales with six and 7,000 students. They're, t- they're tackling better than ever, and I just couldn't be prouder. You know, I was wondering why they scheduled Alabama next year. Oh, please. <laughs> please. Hey, Nick, this, this committee elected a kicker in class of 2017, voting Morton Anderson a gold jacket. He became only a second pure kicker in Shrine and Canton and the first since John Stenroot 27 years ago. Does his election crack the door now for other kickers such as yourself? Well, you know, uh, the game has evolved, gentlemen. I mean, you see kickoffs going out of the end zone. You see a regularity of, of very long field goals, and we can talk about that because I think some of the rules that have happened may have affected that. But the truth is that even with that, because Morton absolutely just exploded so many records, and I got to compete and beat out head-to-head a guy named John Stenard I never thought I could have done two years earlier in 1980. Um, but the, even with those two, that is less than 1% of all the people in the Hall of Fame. And uh, one stat I saw once was that during the regular season, the kicking game, all the kicking game, punting, kickoffs, returns, field goals, everything, determines about one of every three outcomes. But in the playoffs, it, it close to doubles. So the pressure on kickers is tremendous. And I do think it's time that more recognition has happened. It's way overdue that Morton made it and maybe even more overdue than Ray Guy. Because all of us know when they watch this guy, Ray, Ray Guy, punt, particularly in his first five, six years, he did things no one had ever seen before. Well, I'm glad to hear you say that because uh, I was the guy who argued his case finally successfully. Uh, knew Ray as a as a player when I was covering the Raiders. And, and you're right, the guy was a weapon, you know, and, People seem to have forgotten that. But speaking of weapons, you're a weapon who uh, has been through a, <laughs> through a lot of things, including starting your career with my Patriots, who I've been around for the last 35 years. Uh, so you had a two-game stint there, I believe, in 1978, and you scored the first seven points of your career. And that's one of 11 teams that cut you before you ended up in Kansas City. How does a player survive 11 rejections and go on to have the career? I mean, you know, our friend Clark Judge... Uh, he gets he had eleven injections a week from girlfriends, but this is different. I mean, how, how do you survive that? Well, you know, I, let me just say. Uh, by the way, we won both games. We beat the Raiders uh, in the first Sunday night primetime game with Dandy Don Meredith Howard Cosell uh, and uh, uh, who's the other guy? Um, Frank Gifford. Frank Gifford. So Frank Gifford. We, we we were two and zero. Oh, uh, so I had a better. One last record than Tom Brady, but it was a very, uh, shall we say, humble beginning. And the, the message that I learned from that, guys, is how much improvement you can make in two years. Because as a kicker, you don't have 20, 30, 50 plays in, in games to get ready. You have one kick. If you miss it, you are done. And I had to do that eventually against John Stenerud. But the cool thing was, after all those rejections, starting with the Jets and then with the Patriots, you know, you learn to dig deeper. And as a kicker, you have to learn to work your tail off during the week and to focus under enormous pressure to get it done. And that takes time. 
We're speaking with former kicker Nick Lowry on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Nick, since you mentioned all those rejections, of course, your 12th stop there was the Kansas City Chiefs, as you mentioned. And when you get there, uh, guess what? They have Jan Stenrud, as you mentioned, who was their all-time leading scorer, and, of course, the Super Bowl hero. So you were coming in to compete with a legend, the first true kicker enshrined in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Were you told coming in that you'd have the chance to win the job, and, and did it surprise you when you actually did? I knew I had a chance, but I didn't think it was a big chance. And Marv Levy, even recently at the Hall of Fame week, told me, we really didn't expect Nick you know, to have a chance. But the truth is, he gave me a chance by bringing me out in May early. I actually left the, the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, gentlemen, working on aviation safety to try that 12th time. But I felt more ready. And that extra month in May got me mentally tougher, a little bit less intimidated. And, uh, and I just knew one thing. I had to outkick Jan Stenner, the legend, at everything, every single day. And if Rick, if you remember, that training camp in 1980 up there at William Jewell College, it averaged, averaged 107 degrees and humid every single day. I'm still sweating. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Nick, back in... Back in 1979, less than half the NFL teams employed special teams-specific coaches. How did it benefit you going to a franchise that had two of the best special teams coaches in history and two of the strongest special team advocates in history, Marv Levy and Frank Gantz? Well, it's hard not to get emotional about losing Frank Gantz because both Morton Anderson and I got to have him coach us. And, you know, what happens with head coaches, they're very used to a paradigm of four practices of a particular play that move on to the next one. The difference with a field goal or with special teams, especially an onside kick as, as well as a field goal, is it can be the game winner. And what Marv Levy understood and what Frank Gans understood was that extra, instead of making it five or six field goals with the team once a week, you made it at least twice a week, and you made it maybe 10 or 12. That muscle memory, not just for the kicker, but for the snapper, the holder, the offensive line that take the brunt of that rush with 11 guys paid millions of dollars to kill you. I mean, that's important stuff. And that level of team confidence, especially in plays that are absolutely points, absolutely game deciders, it's worth it. So there's a level of wisdom. I, I mean, it's the best word I can use, of wisdom that the coaches have that understand the special team's edge that comes from a kicker, a punter, or even a returner. Now, you were one of the most accurate kickers of your day, and for 10 years you ranked number one with the, your conversion rate of 79.9%, uh, but let's call it 80. Uh, now it's common, though, for kickers to routinely convert you know, 85 90% of their kicks, and, and you've slid to... 53rd most accurate kicker of all time. Uh, how and why has the bar been raised or changed, and what obstacles did you face as a kicker that these guys don't face today? Well, let me just first say, you know, the game has evolved tremendously, and we all know the game conditions. If you watch the, the Chiefs Sunday night game on that crushed rubber in Houston, the, the game conditions, the field, uh, often there's a dome or there's very little wind. The field has no impurities. There isn't mud. Uh, that makes a huge difference. Um, the, the training now players, even those that are less paid, can afford to have a top-class trainer physically train them as well. But, you know, if you look at the statistics, Stenard, I think, was 64% of his career. He was 58% at Arrowhead Stadium. I was 85%. Um, and I was actually 85 or 86% there in the 90s um, because 
I got better. I, I learned to train smarter. And today's kickers, yeah, they're better, but they aren't that much better. One of the things that has happened, which John Stender wanted me to bring up, <laughs> he really <laughs> should be the one. But I, I will say, since Tony Romo fumbled that slippery ball in Seattle, in the uh, playoffs, it would have been an extra point to win the game, a 20-yard field goal. Uh, they changed the rules, got rid of the K-balls, and they had an official break in those footballs. And so if you've traced the average punt net, the average punt distance, the average kickoff difference, the percentage of 50-yarders and the number of 50-yarders, it, it hasn't just gotten 15% better. It's exploded. So while the kickers are better than ever, just like at every other position, um, I think the football is a little bit easier to kick now just because if any of you played baseball, you know what it was like when you got that really tough leather glove and you, you slept where there's like your teddy bear and you put linseed oil on it and you worked it in and suddenly you could catch a ball and it was much more pliable. And late in the season, gentlemen, 33-yard extra points, the windy games, the windy outdoor stadiums, the cold environment, that football's like a rock. Rick, you might remember the very last game out there in Minnesota in that old outdoor stadium where the field was solid rock. I remember uh, you know, just how hard the ball was back then. It's still a hard thing. It's still a very difficult position. Kickers are better than ever, but it's a little bit easier to kick now because the conditions are better, the training's better. The filming, much better film to watch, more technique, more coaches. And all those things, I think, cumulatively, just plain add up. Well, Nick, I'm glad you brought that up about the conditions because I wanted to ask you, um, if kickers who spend the bulk of their careers indoors, should they be judged differently than those guys who spent the bulk of their careers outdoors in the elements? Well, I, I just think that it's something to take into account. Um, the last game, I, I wish I could have played a lot more games in um, – well, I, I, I think I kicked a 54 and a 52-yarder on Thanksgiving Day against Detroit. And then the last time I ever got to play in the old stadium uh, in New Orleans, first game of the season, 85, I had a 48-yarder hit the top of the net, a 52-yarder, 52-yarder, and a 36-yarder in the first 21 minutes of the game. Um, I think what happens is in some outdoor games, you, you miss a field goal that maybe would have gone through if there hadn't been, you know, a weird wind. And you, as a kicker, you have to learn to take responsibility for everything. It's a great lesson for life. You don't make excuses. But let's say you miss that one. And then on the next kick, just like if you're a golfer, you overcorrect. Well, indoors, you don't have those things. You know it's you. And I think I was 85% indoors in my career. Um, you know, so chances are I would have had maybe a few less misses. And those misses add up. I mean, they haunt you. So you have to learn to put them behind you. And I think for the most part, I learned to do that and just learn from it, just like life itself, and get better. But there are less reasons for unpredictable things to happen, uh, less variables indoors. Nick, let's talk about your makes. You had 15 game-winning kicks in your career, including two in the playoffs. You also had three game-winning kicks in Pro Bowls. When we discuss Hall of Fame candidates, we talk about their signature moments. So what was the signature kick of your career? You know, um, I feel really blessed, Rick, that there were a lot of them. Um, of course, as you know, in the 80s, the Chiefs were just not a great uh, franchise. And when Marty Schottenheimer and Clark uh, and Carl Peterson came, we became that. And you know, culminating with my last two with the Chiefs when we had Marcus Allen and, and Joe Montana, et cetera. So I would say uh, there are many, but... Over time, uh, in the playoffs against Pittsburgh, that was a huge one. I'll never forget that. Um, 
I'll never forget my first field goals. I mean, speaking of Marv Levy, tapping him on the shoulder, Marv was crazy uh, on the sidelines. He was the nicest man and is the nicest man probably ever. But I, I tapped him on the shoulder when we just passed midfield against Seattle, and they hadn't kicked a field goal for the Chiefs yet. And said, Coach, I think I can, I think I can make that. I made a 50-yarder earlier in the game, my first field goal attempt for the Chiefs, and I hit a 57-yarder that Jack Patera said could have gone halfway up the net. And that was important because I had to make a statement as I look back you know, that I belonged, not so much to other people, but to myself. And I think that's one of the great lessons of football is persistence, realizing if you stick through all those rejections, you can get better and maybe even better than you ever thought. Nick Lowry, thanks so much for the time. And go big green. (laughs) Go big green, baby. (laughs) Thanks, Nick. Uh, That was former kicker Nick Lowry, who's a Hall of Fame candidate. Up next, it's the two-minute drill. And I'm running it again, so don't go anywhere. This is the Talk of Fame Network. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. There's that whistle again, which means either Aaron Rodgers is about to take it to your Dallas Cowboys, Goose, or I have the two-minute drill. You know what? Uh, I don't see Aaron in the studio, guys, so let's get started. Amari Cooper has four catches in his last three games. So when does he get released from witness protection? The last Cooper to pull this kind of disappearing act was DB, and they still haven't found him. (laughs) I'd say as soon as Derek Carr gets released by the medical team. Best undefeated team, Kansas City Chiefs, University of Alabama, or Dartmouth College, baby? Bama, I can see the Chiefs and the Dartmouth Indians losing this fall. I can't see the Crimson Tide falling. (laughs) Clark, Dartmouth College's field hockey team does not count. Goose, you haven't seen that Dartmouth schedule. Hey, they couldn't beat the Chargers at home, so when did the Giants win a game? Christmas Eve at Arizona. (laughs) When it's too late, which is already the case. (laughs) Pay Manny says, I will always be a Colt. How does that play in Denver? About as well as, I will always be a Bronco, Shannon Sharp winning a Super Bowl ring with the Ravens. (laughs) Yeah. I think it plays okay because Broncos were once Colts, were they not? The Cleveland Browns the last two years have passed up on Jared Goff, Carson Wentz, and Deshaun Watson in the draft. What are they waiting for? The next great Spartan quarterback following the footsteps of Earl Morrill, Kirk Cousins, and Brian Hoyer. (laughs) Oh, goodness. They're waiting for a quarterback Paul Brown could be proud of. Otto Graham, too. Yes, I take that. Hey, Colin Kaepernick says he'll stand for the anthem if you sign him. So why is nobody interested? Maybe you should square off the pig socks next. Ouch. Ouch. Because he needs to tell that political athlete's girlfriend to sit down and stay in New York. <laughs> Is Kyle Shanahan suffering from a Super Bowl hangover, or do the 49ers just stink? It's amazing how many head guys get head coaching jobs based on the performance of their quarterback. Unfortunately, they can't bring that quarterback with them. In his case, Matt Ryan. <laughs> Something doesn't change in San Francisco. He's going to have more than a hangover. He's going to be in rehab. Worst team in New York, Mets, Knicks, or the Giants? Until the Giants win a game, there's only one answer to that question. Exactly right. The Mets and the Knicks found a way to win. Giants. What's next for former uh, Dolphins offensive line coach and sometimes snowboarder Chris Forrester? Like a New York subway, I think Chris is going to go underground for a while. (laughs) Next step, film school to learn how to edit. We'd like to thank Herschel Walker, Nick Lowry, Charlie Cassidy, and Seth Wickersham for joining us. Robert Harris Jr. for producing us. And you... 